The Appalachian Trail is 2,181 miles long. It stretches across 14 states. Most people choose to start in Springer Mountain in Georgia, and around 3 million people hike a portion of it every year. On average, for the thru-hikers, it takes around six months to finish in northern Maine. If you are curious of thinking you can do it a little faster, the world record was set about two years ago by a guy named Carl Meltzer who did it in just under 46 days. That's an average of 48 miles a day. When I was graduating college, a few friends of mine decided that we wanted to do something memorable and significant. We didn't hike the whole thing or weren't attempting to hike the whole thing, but we wanted to hike a portion of the Appalachian Trail. How many of you have ever been on at least a portion? We chose the Shenandoah National Park. It was a 101-mile trek on uh, the trail. Now, I was a novice, so to speak, when it came to hiking. If you were to add up and accrue all my previous hikes, I may have just had enough for a Summit County Metro staff. Like, I had not been hiking, had not been overnight hiking, and so I had to learn a lot of information, right? Uh, Borrowed a backpack, purchased some decent hiking shoes that were more than I was comfortable paying for, and then started to prepare my backpack, right? Uh, I went to Tim and I started telling Tim some ideas, admits, studying for finals, trying to think of what I was going to pack. And I'm like, Tim, okay, I think I got it. I've done my research. I need some protein. I need some energy to get me through. How about some cans of tuna and some beans? He's like, Adam, you can't take cans. He's like, you can't discard them. And he's like, your legs are going to feel it at the end of like 25 miles each day. And he's like, you need to pack light. And I'm like, okay. What would I enjoy eating for a week? How about peanut butter and jelly, right? And he's like, you can't pack a loaf of bread. Not only will it smush, like that will take up about as much space as your mattress pad. What's a mattress pad? Well, you should get one of those too, right? Because it's rather uh, difficult land to sleep on, right? So I'm like, Tim, just tell me what I need to get and I'll go get that. And so he's like, well, here, you know, get your packages of tuna, other things like this. And so I go out and he's like, and by the way, you're going to want some variety because it can be demoralizing at the end of the day just to keep eating the same thing, right? I was thinking candy bars. He suggested cliff bars, right? As I'm going through this process, learning to pack, we're getting ready for our trip. We convince a few friends of ours to drive down with us, and they are going to drop us off at Front Royal, Virginia. The hike is going to finish for us at Harper's Ferry, and they're going to take our car, place it at the end. Very nice friends of ours. So we get down and we get ready to go on the hike. The Appalachian Trail, or this portion, is known for its change in elevation. We start at about 550 uh, feet above sea level, and at one portion goes to about 4,000 feet. They have a famous portion known as the AT roller coaster. In a 13 and a half mile stretch, there is 10,000 feet worth of elevation change. But all of this elevation change lends to some amazing beauty. 
many different uh, rich vegetation, uh, 50 or so different kinds of mammals that we'll see. And over the course of these few days, some of the most memorable sights and experiences that I've ever seen of nature. The Appalachian Trail, this portion, traces the Blue Ridge Mountains. And they have the famous Raven Rocks in the Sky Meadow Park. Had it not been for my friends, I would have never made it on this journey. One of memorable sights and beautiful wonder. We believe that the story of God itself is a story of wonder, of beauty, and intrigue. We believe that every time we engage with the story, we come away with new information and new sights. Whether we're inexperienced hikers or been through the Bible a lot, we often end up learning a lot from each other. So over the next nine weeks, we want to invite each of you on a journey. Starting March 31st, we're going to suggest that you grab a travel companion or two and commit for those following six weeks to read a section of scripture that we will give you to get together over coffee, discuss what God is teaching you. And so we're going to invite, we'll give you a framework for that journey. We're going to tell you more as that series is going to be called Long Story Short, where we're going to go an overview, an entire landscape of the Bible. But over the next few weeks, we want to have preparation for that trip. We want to prepare you for the journey. So we're going to answer some questions as it relates to the Bible. Before that we can jump in, we have to be real and realistic about our perspective and paradigm related to the Bible. So today we're going to start with the question of where did we get the Bible? Next week, why we should read the Bible. And the final week, how I should read the Bible. In the first place that we need to start today is what do you personally believe about this? I'm so thankful that many of you participated over the last few weeks in our spiritual life survey. That you took honest time to give results and feedback about your spiritual practices and your beliefs. 33% of you said that you were uncertain that this was the authority of your life, that this was trustworthy and reliable. We're so thankful that you shared what you believe with us. The other 66% of us claim that to be the authority of our lives, But if we were to be pressed and prodded in a conversation, many of us may not have any evidence why we believe what we believe, right? Maybe we just grew up in church or in an environment where we always trusted that this was God's word. So today we want to unpack that. Where did we get the Bible? Is it trustworthy and true? I think there's two predominant questions that we must seek to answer. Is what God intended, what was written down, thus true? In the second, 
is what God originally wrote been maintained to where we can trust it today? I think the first part that we must start is the fact that the Bible claims to be of divine origin. That might not be surprising. What may surprise you is that very few books do so. But early in Scripture, and often we kind of see this framework that the Bible claims to be from God. If you're in 2 Timothy, in verse 16 of chapter 3, this is what Paul says as he's writing to Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's two Greek words smashed together. It's theopanistos. Literally, that means an extension of God himself, that God breathed into existence the very words of the Bible. This kind of theme or the idea of God's breath is prevalent throughout Scripture. We see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that it says, God breathed breath into Adam through his nostrils. We see also in John chapter 20 that Jesus breathed on the disciples the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is saying is that God has inspired and breathed the word of God. There are around 4,000 times that we see statements in the Bible, such as, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord appeared, or spoke to me. That all throughout scripture, we see this process or claim of divine origin. Now, Peter explains a little bit of the process with which we got the words from God. And he shares that in 2 Peter, starting in verse 20 of chapter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy has come about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, carried, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This kind of framework or terminology is similar to a sailboat that is being carried along by the wind to its final destination. That God used flawless and imperfect human authors to carry his words to their final destination. That God inspires and uses human authors of different personalities, genres, and generations to write his very words. If you take notes, I'd like you to write it like this. That the Bible, the story of God, was authored and carried along by God over the course of human history. That what we have from God is his intellectual property. That it was authored and preserved and carried along over the course of human history. I think the next realistic question that we should be asking is, okay, if we think this Bible is from God, how did it come to us, right? It didn't come straight down from heaven on a cloud and magically appear, right? That it came little by little over the course of 1,500 years. That there are 66 books 39 in the section that we call the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, that were written by over 40 different authors. 
So when we begin to think about the process with which we have the books we claim to be inspired, we kind of, it's helpful to think of different sections of Scripture. The Old Testament, for example, the 39 books was agreed on as late as 140 BC, that the Jews were meticulous in ascribing who was a prophet. A prophet was one who just spoke for and from God. And the Jews, in their process of kind of determining Scripture, were able to determine these 39 books that we have were true and relevant and had come to fruition for different prophetic statements that had been made. Now, for us, that may sound dandy, but our framework is that Jesus, when he was born, God himself lived and walked the earth, he validated the Old Testament. That often we'll hear Jesus say, it is written, right? That he quotes from every book in the Pentateuch, the first five books, eight additional prophets, and other books of the Old Testament. His favorite one to quote from being the Psalms, that as many as 16 times Jesus is quoting from the Psalms. So our trust rests in the fact that Jesus himself believed that the Old Testament was inspired and from God. Now when we come to the New Testament, there's a little more controversy related to those books, right? That how do we know we have the right 27 books? Well, there was a process and a determination with which went in to determine the books as the ones that God had inspired. All of the books that we have were written in what is known as the apostolic era. That was 100 AD. So in a short time span of 50, 60 AD to Revelation closes at 95 AD, in that span of time, we have the authors who are writing these books. And these books were accepted and circulated by the early church. We see Peter and Paul kind of recognize the authority of one another. Look at what Peter says about Paul in his writing. He says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul, he wrote to you with wisdom that God gave him, right? In the same way, all of his letters, that there's things that he wrote about which are hard to understand. Many of us may agree with that about the Bible. But as they do the other scriptures, here Peter is equating the writings of Paul with equal validity to the other scriptures. Paul, who wrote a significant portion and percentage of our New Testament. You see what Paul says when he's talking about the early church, not just scripture. But he says, consequently, in Ephesians, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation which was established through the apostles and the prophets. Now, for centuries after, there would be multiple church councils that wrestled with the authority of certain books. And these church councils kind of had a framework to think through to answer whether they believe these books were inspired word of God. They predominantly had four questions that they were seeking to answer for hundreds of years after. And 
These four questions are kind of the framework. Was the author an apostle or a close connection of the apostle? Did they do life with Jesus? Did they travel or have a close relationship with someone who did? Is the book being accepted by the body of Christ? That these letters that were often written to early churches were others circulating and accepted them as authority? Did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? And did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? And so these questions kind of set the framework to, for the councils to recognize which books believe to be part of God's inspired word. And so what we have today has not only been inspired but preserved by God through the centuries. That it wasn't a council or the early church that determined it, that it was God himself that used human processes in a way to bring his words to us today. Another significant consideration of the Bible is its indestructibility and its reliability. That the Bible is the best well-known book in the history of the world. And it's been attacked more often than any other book. In AD 303, Emperor Diocletian made it his goal to eradicate the Bible. He would fail. A French Enlightenment writer, Voltaire, said this about the Bible. It took 12 men to start Christianity. One will destroy it. In a hundred years, the Bible will be a forgotten book only to be found in museums. A hundred years after his death, his house was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society for the printing and distribution of Bibles. The library of books that we have today has survived fire, criticism, Many attempts to eradicate it, to burn it, to ban it, and to eliminate it altogether. And they all have failed. I had a friend send me an article this week. It was about a church in West Virginia. They had a fire, uh, an unfortunate set of circumstances. In the Coal City Fire Department, ran onto the scene, and the fire was so strong that at one point it actually had the firefighters back out, and they just kind of had to let the fire die down. It says that they were amazed when they finally made their way into the building because everything was charred and full of ashes. But they saw the sight. That there were 12 Bibles that remained intact. They were so surprised and shocked that this can just not happen that they, it went viral on their Facebook page and CNN picked it up. Right, That the indestructibly over the course of many centuries is just a testament to the divine protection. But there's more to just that, that the Bible is reliable. One of the questions we must wrestle with that many ask is, how can we be sure what we have today is what was written then because we don't have any of the original manuscripts? It's a very valid great question that each of us need to wrestle with, right? When we think of it, the New Testament was written on papyrus, right? 
Papyrus is made from reed taken, such as the Nile River, woven together, glued into a parchment to where it could be written on. Well, over the course of many years, it disintegrates. So the same thing is true of the Bible that is true of every other ancient text. We don't possess the originals. So there's a science in a process to determine the accuracy that we can have about the copies that we have today related to the original. And it's done primarily with two categories, a timeline and a quantity. How close is the earliest copy to that of the original? And how many quantities do we have that we can compare against one another? There's other works such as Plato. In Plato's work, we have seven copies over the span of 1,200 years. I want you to think of a copy as the equivalent of a piece of paper. The works of Aristotle, we have 37 copies over a time span of 1,400 years. The works of the New Testament, we not only have a ream of paper worth of copies, we have 50 reams of paper, stacked high would maybe be to the ceiling, around 25,000 copies available of the New Testament with an 80-year time span. Nothing comes close related to this bibliographical text. The next closest in terms of copies is what is Iliad by Homer, which has 643, just a little over in terms of quantity. Now, if you're like me, I have more questions, right? So if there's this many copies, how do they compare with each other, right? A fair question. Well, over the course of this, there's actually very minor and very few errors, most of which would be spelling errors, okay? Instead of John, J-O-H-N, we get John, J-O-N. There is another kind of portion that would be sentence structure. It would be saying something like, we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, or we are saved by Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Minor sentence variation. There's only 40 times where we see a phrase that has changed maybe a significance or meaning, none of which have theological consequence or bearing. It would be like this. Say I got a text from my mom saying, I won tickets to the ball game. And I got an email from my dad saying, I won tickets to the ball game, right? Who was it, mom or dad? Well, my parents kind of won tickets to the ball game. We can kind of see or understand maybe those differences. So in the amount of manuscripts, in the short time frame, in their consistency throughout, we can trust the reliability of Scripture far beyond any other work that we accept from ancient writings. That its indestructibility and reliability gives evidence to believe what we have was written by God. Furthermore, 
the Bible is extremely specific and historically accurate. That occasionally other people have made predictions about the futures or prophecies, right? Nostradamus does it and claimed to have maybe a hundred or so come true, all of which are very vague and kind of unclear. But the Bible, in terms of its prophetic fulfillment, is batting 1,000%. And it's very specific at different times. Take, for example, Isaiah writes in the Old Testament. He writes that there will be a king of Babylon who will rule over many nations 150 years before he's born, 180 years before he would actually have the throne and begin to conquer other nations. He didn't just write about this king. He wrote that this king would be named Cyrus. And he wrote that Cyrus would be the one that would grant permission for the Jews that were held in captivity to go back and rebuild their temple. It's so fascinating when you look at Isaiah 44 and 45. This was written 110 years before Jerusalem had even been destroyed originally. Right? That Isaiah is writing of fulfillment of years, almost 200 years in the future, of this guy that didn't know God, wasn't associated with the Jews, who would ultimately release God's people to come back and rebuild the temple. That in the course of the Old Testament, there are 300 or so messianic, prophetic fulfillments that point to Jesus. Just think of some of these related to his birth. That he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be from the tribe of Judah, the family line of David, that his birth would be announced by a star, that he would be born of a virgin. Many more related to his death, that he would be sold specifically for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed by a friend, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that his garments would be divided by lots cast, that his bones would not be broken, that he would be crucified between thieves, and that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. That the verifiable track record of prophetic fulfillment is 100%. That what we have is very specific and historically accurate. Now, I don't know where you stand and how much difference some of this makes, but for me, one of the most kind of fascinating arguments and evidence is what we would call the dynamic impact of the Bible. That how its message had impacted the early followers and people throughout all generations. Think of Peter, for example. That Peter goes from a man who is a hot-headed fisherman to someone who denies Jesus to become the early pillar and leader of the church. A man who's uh, crucified upside down in the day before his wife from church history records tells him, my beloved, remember Christ. That the message of the Bible has always been transformative and costly. That there are people who can attest to being changed just by reading its words. 
that there are men and women who the lowliest who have been transformed into be faithful servants of other people. That God has worked through the lives to bring about transformation and change that he has worked on people's hearts. I often like to think about this, like what would it have been like for the disciples maybe to have gathered together and said, hey guys, let's create a hoax. Let's lie and fabricate, embellish these stories about Jesus. What would have been their aim? So much so that it would kill everyone that they loved and kill themselves. The early apostles were burned in oil, burned at the stake, crucified, unable to denounce the truth that they believed. Many people die for a lie. It happens. Very few people ever die for a lie that they know to be a lie. That the early followers were convinced that Jesus had lived, he had died, and he had resurrected. That they wrote as eyewitnesses of account of what they saw. And they were willing to be burned at the stake on account of it. If you like this evidence, it's just kind of the tip of the spear. One of the resources that's been helpful to me is a book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There's many different aspects and things related to what we call apologetics, a defense of the faith, to give us evidence and allow us to be able to trust that what we have is trustworthy and true. I have two things else that I'd like to point out to give us a little bit more guidance and instruction with where we're going to be heading. And we see that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says that not only is it authored and carried along by God, but that it's useful, that it's relevant, that it's relatable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This idea of rebuking is pointing out when I'm going a wrong way. This idea of correcting is not just pointing out, but saying this is the way to get back on the right path in the right trail. When uh, my friends and I were hiking the Appalachian Trail, it was May of 2003, that it happened to be a very peculiar and unique kind of set of circumstances that were happening at the time. Over a 24-day period with which we were hiking in the middle, it rained for 24 straight days. It was one of the largest rainfalls recorded in the course of the century. Through hikers actually talk about how horrible that experience was when they reminisce, talking about, oh, do you remember the summer of 2003 and all that rain? Well, we happened to be on the trail that time. It created some fun and excitement. We were crossing like moving rivers when it should have just been a footpath. But we were soaked and soggy that at one point we looked at each other on our fourth, fifth day and we said, I know pride is kind of keeping us from wanting to do this, but how would you feel if we checked out early and hitched a ride back up to Harper's Ferry? And we did that. 
right? That it was so miserable for us that we just chose to get off the trail early. But what we see is that the Bible is helpful for navigating life. That it points out potential hazards, points out, helps us to find shelter, that it's useful and relatable to everyday life. That it can help us through the storms that we're going to encounter, the difficulties that we may experience, the news that we may struggle to have just received that it gives us confidence and hope and assurance to be able to navigate unlike anyone who doesn't have that hope, right? It doesn't mean we're going to have an easy trail, so to speak, but we can have confidence on that trail that we're not alone and that we have guidance and direction for the journey. We're going to talk more next week related to this idea of why we should read the Bible, how it's helpful and useful. Right before verse 16, there's one verse that I want us to see, and this is Paul talking to Timothy and saying, how from as a young child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The final thought is that the Bible charts out a path that culminates in a person. Many people have theories or perspectives of how they get right with God, right? That they do certain things or maybe have to learn certain things, but the Bible is a story ultimately about a person, and that person has lived a life that we are unable to live, and he has done it for our benefit. That over the course of 1,500 years, with many different authors in many different settings and circumstances, God has been able to weave a cohesive, unified story. Among the diversity of his writers, he's got given us a unifying message that centers and culminates about a person. And that person is Jesus. That from the scriptures, we're able to understand and know how to receive salvation, how to be wise, to be right with God. That Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no matter how good we may try to be, that no matter how nice we may try to be to others, we can never earn anything with God. That it's because what he has done to us. If we read the entire Bible and miss Jesus, we've missed the point. Because it all points to him. Front to back culminates around who Jesus is in his work on the cross. That it charts this path that ultimately culminates in the person of Jesus. We'd like to invite you on a journey. We'd encourage you to maybe be praying or think about if you'd be willing to invite someone else on that journey. Whether you're an inexperienced novice hiker or someone who's been through it many times, we believe that it's a story of wonder, of beauty, and intrigue. I don't know where 
you may stand today if you're in the 33% camp or more the 66% camp. But what I believe is we don't have to just check our brains at the door to believe in who Jesus is. That there is verifiable evidence and truth to know and to believe what God has written has been preserved so that we can hear from God. But for those of us that may claim to believe it the authority of our life, how often are we reading and letting the Bible read us? I think of people all around the world who would give anything to be in your seat this morning, to have access at any time to hear from God's heart. There's people that die just to get their hands on a copy of this. That it's been banned and eliminated and tried to be destroyed all throughout countries of the world. And we have access to where we can keep a copy in our car, on our phone, on our shelves. And in it, God has woven a beautiful story that he invites us to participate in. One of wonder and beauty, one of grace and goodness, that the more we see who he is and the more we understand who we were, that we live out of joy and hope in response for what he's done for us. That we can live with excitement and passion, not knowing that this journey is going to be easy, but with confidence, assurance, and security, knowing that he gives us the privilege to be called one of his children with eternal hope and everlasting life because of what he's done for us, the forgiveness that he's offered on the cross. Father, we thank you that you have recorded your story for us. We thank you that in it we hear from you, your heart and your passion, your desire that you've made it evidently and abundantly clear that you've pursued us throughout all history that you want to be in a relationship with us. Lord, I pray that we would find encouragement and strength from the words that would ultimately lead us to you, that we would find hope and strength for our journey. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done, and we thank you that you've invited us to explore your story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.